Welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. We're your hosts, Max Frost, Max Tui, and Matt Winesett. Each week, we take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start bantering. Please repeat after me. We should not be the world's policemen. Repeat again and again. Apparently, you just do not get it that an overwhelming majority of Americans would agree with this declaration. Unfortunately, you do not. Brett Stevens received this email in 2014 after advocating a strong U.S. response to Russia's seizure of Crimea. The angry emailer is probably right, though. Most Americans today are dubious the U.S. should play a strong role on the world stage. But maybe most Americans are wrong. In the five years since Brett Stevens wrote his book, America in Retreat, in which he recounts this email exchange, the world has only grown more chaotic. Russian troops remain in Ukraine. Iranian and Syrian troops continue to terrorize local populations. And China has only become more of an economic and geopolitical rival. Brett Stevens himself joined us today to discuss this global outlook and what a successful American foreign policy should look like going forward. He's currently an opinion columnist for the New York Times, and before joining the Times in 2017, he wrote the Global View column for the Wall Street Journal. He also served as editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. He won the Pulitzer Prize for Commentary in 2013, and he is author of the excellent book, America in Retreat, The New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder. So welcome back to Banter. That was Matt Winesett you just heard. I'm Max Frost. Our third host is to my right. That's Max Tui. Brett Stevens is our guest today. He is one of the most influential foreign policy writers in the country, first at the Wall Street Journal, now at the New York Times. I'm a huge fan of his work. I think we all are. Pretty much whenever anything of significance happens in the world, he's one of the people that we all turn to to read and see what he's saying. So if you like hearing from Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times columnists and you like political banter, you're going to love this episode. So we can't wait to talk with him and stick around for the end where we have a new segment and we always end the show with a little post-interview bantering. So without further ado, here is Brett Stevens. Governor Haley, thanks for coming it's in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Miss Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Brett, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So you are one of the country's most outspoken conservative critics of the president, yet He's also done a great deal in the Middle East that you have called for in the past, such as strengthening our relationship with Israel, confronting Iran. How do you feel about his foreign policy so far, uh, especially in the Middle East? Well, I think it's a very mixed picture. Uh, I've given the president full marks when he uh, has done things that I think are correct. I publicly supported him in the pages of the New York Times when he uh, withdrew the United States from the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. I supported him in moving the United States Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I've agreed with his view, uh, or his apparent view, that Iran is our principal and most serious adversary in in the Middle East. Uh, On the other hand, I've been a critic uh, when he repeatedly attempted to withdraw U.S. forces from uh, Syria, which, among other things, has the inadvertent effect, or, or perhaps the advertent effect, of strengthening Iran's hand. I am strongly opposed to his efforts to withdraw American troops from uh, Afghanistan. I, I suspect that 
his excessive proximity to Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia or Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Egypt uh, will uh, come to haunt us. And more broadly, uh, I criticize the president for effectively embracing the same view that his predecessor, Barack Obama, had that the United States can simply choose to uh, end endless wars, as, um, as he has put it in, 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 in a few tweets. Um, you know, the United States may dearly want to turn its back on the Middle East, but we've learned to our cost that the Middle East isn't so interested in turning its back on us. And so if we are going to disengage, if we are not going to have a serious policy for the region, we will eventually be haunted by the consequences. And I think there's probably more consonance between Donald Trump's worldview and Barack Obama's view than either man cares to admit. Brett, one thing you've talked about in the past is the corrosive effects of President Trump on some of our most important political institutions. And this week there was, you know, the clip of of Prime Minister Trudeau and other world leaders speaking and laughing and mocking President Trump. And so my question for you is, how has President Trump's foreign policy and relationships with global leaders changed the world's perception of the United States of America? Well, first off, uh, I'm no fan of Justin Trudeau, and I think that a leader who devotes so little of his uh, budget to strengthening uh, North American defenses, um, as Trudeau has, uh, really is not in a good place to um, laugh at uh, a president who shoulders the overwhelming burden for the success of NATO and, and the defense of its member states. But, you know, during the Obama administration, one of the critiques uh, many of us conservatives had about him was that he was tougher on our allies than he was on our adversaries. And um, I think that has been a mark as well of of the Trump administration. I think it is unbelievable to have an American president who is uh, refusing to engage, for example, in uh, military exercises with South Korea as a sop to a dictator like uh, Kim Jong-un. I think it is shocking that a president of the United States should call himself a big fan of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, a Turkish strongman who, among other things, um, has made friends with Islamists throughout the region, including the terrorists in uh, Hamas. I think it's shocking that he's picked unnecessary trade wars, never mind with adversaries like China, but with longstanding trading partners in North America, Asia, and, um, and Europe. And all of that is corroding what used to be called the free world, that part of the world mostly... Uh, in the North Atlantic, but also in, in, in other places, uh, that recognized that it had uh, similar values and that those values led to similar uh, interests. Nationalism has never been uh, a useful way of thinking about the American interest. We are not a nation state like, uh, like, like any other. Um, but we also have, since the 1940s, uh, shouldered the burden, uh, much to our long-term advantage, of maintaining this unity of the free world. And I think that is, is coming apart under this presidency. We might not see its effects immediately, but at some point we run the risk of um, decoupling the United States from 
our democratic uh, friends around the world in ways that I think will, will come to haunt us. Do you think that the president is doing undoable damage to the idea of America as, you know, the light on the hill? I mean, you wrote this op-ed, I think, or this column a couple weeks ago about dissidents in Cuba and Iran. And generally speaking, there's this idea that people don't take the U.S. seriously when you have Trump as this pro-strongman president. Yet at the same time, you see videos out of Hong Kong, people waving American flags. You hear a lot of stuff out of the Middle East where people are still... You know, they want American support, whether it's in Lebanon or Iraq. So what's your read on that? Well, from time to time, the president, or at least his administration, has spoken up against human rights abuses. Uh, The president did sign the uh, legislation concerning Hong Kong, albeit very reluctantly. But for the most part, the administration has gone out of its way to distance itself from sort of the traditional American self-understanding as a champion of democracies, as a leader in uh, human rights, as an advocate for dissidents. And that ultimately, again, contributes to the corrosion of American power, because simply being the the biggest uh, country economically or the most powerful militarily doesn't guarantee a leadership position. Leadership is guaranteed only when there are countries that are prepared to follow you because they see you as, um, at a minimum, better than the alternatives, but hopefully as an inspiring model for where they want their own societies to go. And, and that, too, I think, has, has wilted under this administration. I mean, imagine what it means to the people who are fighting for human rights Um, for example, in the Philippines, to see uh, Trump pal around with Mr. Duterte and uh, make jokes about the purported evils of the media in a place where where journalists are being being, uh, harassed and sometimes violently threatened. So that's really problematic, I think, from from, in the sense of the long-term American interest. You know, more deeply, I don't think America has ever been particularly well served by a purely transactional view of foreign policy. If we'd had a transactional view of foreign policy in 1948, we would have traded away West Berlin for some goodie somewhere else, and in the process lost what 41 years later became our key to defeating the Soviet Union in the Cold War. So we should be careful about the temptations of short-term advantage, of of gaining short-term advantage at the expense of our, not not just long-term interests, but perennial values. So one, thankfully, one strong man that the president has not complimented yet or called his best friend are the Ayatollahs in Iran. What is your read on the current protests there? Are they, I mean, there's one story, I think last week from the New York Times saying that maybe as many as 450 have been killed by the regime. Why does it seem like this hasn't been a bigger deal? And and what do you think is going to happen there? Well, I think Trump was actually quite eager to have a parlay with uh, Rouhani uh, of the sort that he's had. Uh, with with Kim Jong uh, Un, and we were only spared from that scenario because the Iranians refused to meet with uh, with Trump. Look, I, I think we should be speaking up as vocally as possible, and to some extent, the State Department has done this uh, with people like Brian Hook in calling attention to the travesties of human rights that the Iranian regime has been committing against its own its own people. Uh, we should be complementing a sanction strategy with a human rights uh, strategy to bring maximum pressure to bear on on the regime. 
if for nothing else than to achieve a viable nuclear agreement, which puts nuclear weapons genuinely out of the reach of that of that regime. If the Iranian people want to take things farther, that's that's something for the for the Iranian people uh, to do. Now, why haven't we been able to? Why haven't? Why hasn't there been more attention to it? Well, probably a combination of factors. News has been slow to filter out. That's one simple but truthful explanation. I think the other explanation is that as a country, we've been so distracted by the endless parade of Trump scandals, some of them real, some of them less so, that we have taken our eye off equally important, if not more important, uh, situations abroad. Do you think that there's going to be a return in the U.S. among political opinion for an appetite to re-engage in the Middle East? Because right now, some of the major concerns in the Middle East, you know, geopolitically, it's access to energy, particularly for our allies that don't have their own. It's been terrorism, but when you look the other day, for example, this Saudi gunman in Florida who murdered a couple people there, that's one of our allies. So it seems like kind of the terrorism aspect of it has kind of waned. We haven't suffered a major terrorist attack from an al-Qaeda or ISIS-type group in a long time. Meanwhile, the geopolitical imperatives, normal American voters don't care about. So do you see kind of a permanent decline in our interest in the Middle East based off domestic politics here? No, I mean, look, uh, Henry Kissinger in one of his memoirs talks about the um, pendulum swing in American foreign policy. He's called it the disastrous oscillations in American foreign policy between overcommitment and isolationism. And for the last decade, the pendulum has been moving both under Obama and Trump towards a certain kind of isolationism. Uh, But as I said to you earlier, even when we try to pretend we're not interested in the Middle East, uh, the Middle East has a way of being interested in us. And it's the job of genuine statesmen to focus American gazes or America's gaze on matters, on issues that matter in the long term, even if they're not uh, of immediate concern. I mean, there's always been real statesmanship has always involved a quality of pedagogy of teaching. That's one of the things that really has been missing from from this administration. You know, my fear is that we may find ourselves reawakened to the Middle East and its problems by the sort of attack that we had on September 11th. You know, I remember very vividly in a month or two before 9-11, a terrorism expert or self-described terrorism expert wrote an op-ed that was published in the New York Times talking about the declining threat of terrorism. You can, you can look it up. I think the guy's name was Larry Johnson. So the absence at the moment of large-scale terrorist attacks or of an apparently imminent threat really shouldn't lull us into imagining that that's, that's just a, a kind of a receding issue uh, in, in, in the scale of America's uh, concerns. Brett, one thing I want to go back to for a second here is... President Trump's cozying up to the global strongmen, and particularly the strongmen of countries that have long been our adversaries, and for obvious reasons, indisputable reasons. And sometimes it's hard to think that there's a political calculation behind Trump's cozying up to people like Duterte or Kim Jong-un or elsewhere. 
Why does he do it? It does this require a psychological? I mean, and if I can add one more thing, Brett, it is refreshing to have a president who's not apologizing constantly for America on the global stage, who's not being so passive as President Obama was with Syria and with Iran. So there is something refreshing about Trump's boldness internationally. But why, why with obvious political adversaries? You know, that's that's a difficult question to answer. I think there are maybe three possibilities, none of which is incompatible with the other. I mean, one is one is a psychological explanation that Trump admires strongmen, either because he seeks to wield the kind of power they have, or he, in some deeper way, seeks to yield to the power they have. Then a second explanation has been uh, kind of a mercantile one. Trump has had business interests, uh, certainly not in North Korea, but in Turkey and Russia, uh, that uh, have um, have made play in, in his calculations. And the third is a kind of uh, ideological one, which is that, you know, Trump Trump's basic worldview is what I describe as a kind of truculent isolationism. Don't tread on us, but we'll stay out of your business if you stay out of ours. And I think those three things kind of uh, line up, uh, and it's difficult to figure out what weight you should assign to each one. But I was, I was very struck by how Trump was derisive with Emmanuel Macron at his last, their last encounter at the NATO summit, whereas and, you know Macron is someone who's gone out of his way to try to improve relations with Trump as against his uh, press conference with uh, Erdogan, where he was, um, you know, where he was basically a pussycat. And maybe there's simply an issue of a kind of uh, failure of nerve in the face of guys who are genuinely tough guys like Erdogan is, as opposed to people who perhaps threaten him a little less, like Macron. But that's exactly the sort of opposite of what you expect from a leader of the United States, someone who will be more understanding of the concerns uh, and issues and dilemmas of our allies than he will be with those of our, uh, of our enemies. Again, if the presidential behavior were exactly as it were, but the name of the president was Hillary Clinton as opposed to Donald Trump, I am certain that conservatives in all the usual places would be unremittingly hard on, on the president. The only problem here is a kind of partisanship bordering on tribalism, which I think keeps a lot of conservatives from calling out behavior that uh, they ought to deplore. Well, isn't there kind of a rationale for that? I mean, if you are a conservative who's now defending Trump, the idea that in 2020 we could elect a President Warren or a President Sanders, I mean, they're certainly not going to, at least it seems that they would not recommit the U.S. in any capacity to a more aggressive foreign policy, especially vis-a-vis Iran. Yeah, I mean, look, once uh, I'm certainly never going to vote for Elizabeth Warren under practically any circumstances. When you put it in those, you know, it's either Trump or the other person category, I understand the argument, although I don't embrace it, but I understand the argument for saying, well, it has to be Trump because the alternative is, you know, foreign policies that are just as bad, even if they're carried out for with different justifications, 
combined with a ruinous program of statism, if not actual socialism. But then that's not what we're really talking about here. I mean, it's, if, if, you're, if you're a partisan, if you're actually a Republican member of Congress or something, then I fine, you know, that's the team you play on and you want your team to win. But those of us who are in the commentary business, those of us who think of ourselves, at least in the ideas business, I think have an obligation to call things as we see them without that same sense of, well, you know, at the end of the day, the Republicans are my team, and so I'm going to bend every effort to uh, help them win. I mean, that's certainly not the way I conceived my job as a columnist uh, at the Times, just as I didn't think of, think of myself that way when I was, I was at the Wall Street Journal. I'm not on Team Republican Party. And I think that all of us, and that goes for the people at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, need to be very careful about maintaining intellectual honesty and credibility as the parties begin to shift or, or have shifted quite dramatically in terms of the things that they stand for. Yeah, as podcast hosts, I think we are also in the commentary business. And I want to contradict my co-hosts a little bit here. Trump might not have gone to Cairo to launch an apology tour, but still he makes shameful comments like, oh, well, you know, we kill plenty of people too, just like Putin's Russia. And I think that in some ways is worse than apologizing for past misdeeds. Brett, I want to... Oh, sure. And by the way, Trump has actually explicitly said that he does not believe in America as an exceptional nation. You can do a YouTube search of it. Uh, Obama was routinely assailed by right-wingers for, you know, allegedly not believing in, believing in American exceptionalism, but Trump, who explicitly says so, gets a pass on that score. And, and the whole, I mean, Trump uh, has engaged in uh, various forms of moral, moral equivalencies that would be shameful coming from some, you know, assistant lecturer at a community college, you know, nevertheless, you know, not to mention the president of the United States. And all of this goes almost completely unremarked by people, commentators on the right, who really ought, ought to know better and just are kind of people who prefer not to look for one reason or another. So your book, America in Retreat, I think you wrote in 2013. I was reviewing it the other day. And it's, it's mainly about, you talked about Rand Paul a lot and how the Republicans are becoming more isolationist and the Democrats obviously are as well, all still pretty much true in the Trump era. I was struck by that. I think you start off the book with a reader email kind of lambasting you by saying, the reader says, repeat after me, Brett, we cannot be the world's police. It's something we hear all the time from our friends. And yet you kind of make the case that, no, we should be the world police. So what is your argument there? Listen, without a world policeman, the world eventually reverts to a kind of chaos. Just as without police in your communities, you would soon have uh, a kind of chaos. Order is not spontaneous. Order is not self-generating. Uh, the, the, the great lesson of the First World War is that the balance of power or balance of power politics are not a successful formula for preventing catastrophic warfare. And the great lesson of World War II is that the collective security formula is not a great recipe for preventing exactly the same outcome. So in the world in which we live, it behooves the major liberal democratic powers to do the job of policing the global commons to the best that they can, or to the, to, to the extent that they can, to preventing aggression, to defending small states embattled by or, or threatened by 
tyrannical neighbors or, or enemies. And that was the job that the United States performed from the moment the Truman Doctrine was announced back in 1947 for many decades. And on the whole, that policy served us incredibly well. It prevented the outbreak of World War III. It created a world in which democracy and American ideals flourished. It created a world in which the United States consistently came out the winner in terms of the economic stakes. Why on earth would we, would we not want to do that is really, is, is really my question. And the answer, of course, I, that I often hear is, well, it costs so much. Well, again, if you actually look at the cost of it, defense spending is a share of our gross domestic product, which is really the measure that uh, matters most, has been falling and falling and falling for the past 60 or 70 years. It is a smaller portion of the federal budget. It's a smaller portion of our, of our GDP. So performing that role, obviously performing it prudentially, performing it with sense and restraint, I think it's an essential aspect of American uh, leadership, and we should be mindful that as America retreats from one corner of the world or another, we simply create power vacuums that are going to be filled by willful, malicious, and dangerous actors who threaten us or will come to threaten us. So that's the core of the argument. And, I mean, this is arrogant of me to say this, but I've yet to see a counter-argument that I find not only, never mind persuasive, even particularly credible. First of all, I think the three of us in the studio here are in in complete agreement on the importance of the United States moral leadership in the world. But when we look at some of our peers and when we went to college, Matt and Max at UVA and, and myself at Notre Dame, so not even far left schools here, but a lot of our peers are, you know, we've been, we've, sort of were taught a self-flagellating version of United States history where look at all the misdeeds over the years. We were terrible in this decade. We were terrible in that decade. Look at all the problems we've done. And there's like an increasingly morally relativistic worldview where, yeah, and in comparison to the United States presence in Iraq to in Star Wars, the empire being on all these different planets. And it was like, that's what our generation was taught. So how do you kind of undo that and show that we actually do have the responsibility and we should take on these global challenges, even with our imperfect framework? Well, I guess I have an unshakable faith in the uh, idea that people grow up and that the ideas that we have when we're 19 or 20 years old do not necessarily have to be the ideas we have when we're 40 or 50. I'm, I'm guessing you guys are a little younger than I am, but I assure you that uh, even at the University of Chicago, which is perhaps a more conservative school, you know, this idea of you know, American empire, uh, imperial overstretch, uh, and so on, those ideas were were, were were prevalent in the 80s and 90s, and they were prevalent in the 60s and 70s, too. So there's nothing really new here. I mean, it just means that uh, more and more of what passes for education in the United States necessarily takes the form of remedial education at the adult level as opposed to at the, you know, as opposed to among younger people. Americans are also... Uh, have also been schooled by by life. And there was a generation after 9-11, many of whom served heroically uh, abroad, 
that woke up to the reality that history had not, in fact, ended, that evil was real, that we had such a thing, there, there was a category of people that we rightfully needed to think about as, uh, as enemies. And uh, the people who belong to that generation will also make their views uh, and their ideas felt. So I'm not, I guess I'm not so pessimistic just because people, uh, people mature and, and, and so, do their, so do their ideas. I think the real shame is that um, uh, the great opportunity to have a kind of thoughtful pedagogy uh, among you know, people who are with, with students is being so often squandered. Uh, and, that's, and that's a shame because it means that when you learn your lessons late, you tend to learn them the hard way. So right now, very interesting period for the Middle East. So you have all this turmoil in Iraq and Lebanon. You have tremendous pressure on the regime in Iran. You have MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, in Saudi Arabia, who wants to modernize the country, bring it into the 21st century. And then you have... The I think perpe- we want to bring it into the 20th century. <laughs> 20th century, whatever century it may be, he wants to bring it into a new century. And then you have, of course, Israel, Palestine, the ongoing conflict there. So I'm wondering, in 20 years, do you think it's possible that we will see a democratic Iran, a Saudi Arabia that respects human rights, and a peaceful settlement between Israel and Palestine? I think the prospect of a democratic Iran is 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 considerable in many for because Iran and the Iranian people have had an education in theocracy and tyranny. I, I use the word education in quotation marks. That is going to cure uh, many generations from the temptation to engage in religious politics or uh, not to respect uh, human rights. And I think uh, everything I know about Iran leads me to conclude that it is an incredibly rich and resourceful civilization that has been, in a sense, held hostage by uh, its worst elements for the past 40 years. So I do think that Iran will have uh, a democratic uh, future. I think Saudi Arabia, that's more difficult. I find it more difficult to be uh, hopeful about its prospects. Saudi Arabia has a lot of catching up to do in terms of the cultivation of its um, human resources. It has relied for so long on extravagant wealth that it has done relatively little to earn um, through, you know, the, by making the best use of its, um, of its uh, human talent. But I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I'd, love to be, I'd love to be proven wrong. Uh, the Arab world has had a tough road to development for a whole variety of reasons. And things have not uh, gotten much better in the last uh, 15 or uh, 15 or 20 years. The most that can be said about it is that there's perhaps some renewed awareness of the nature of the crisis, so that the diagnosis, at least, is no longer that it's all the fault of you know uh, evil Zionists or rapacious colonialists or, or or whatever it is that the that the fault really lies with the way those countries have misgoverned themselves for uh, so many generations. Um, I love 20-year predictions because no one, is, no one, no one remembers them uh, 20 years on. You underestimate uh, our audience, Brett. Brett, we're writing these down. Oh, good. Well, you know, <laughs> nowadays, uh, everything that uh, one ever says or thinks is <laughs> exactly. guaranteed to be held against them at some point in the future. 
But look, I don't know. I mean, one thing I do feel some confidence in is uh, is the state of Israel. I think Israel is in very good shape. Um, I think the country has proved it has qualities of self-confidence, adaptability, uh, and introspection, uh, which uh, should, which have and 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 continue to serve it well. And uh, people who have bet against the country have consistently been proved wrong. Uh, and I suspect that uh, 20 years from now, and in fact 200 years from now, people will look at Israel as as really one of the great successes of the nation state uh, amidst many failures. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed on that. And we will call you back in 20 years to <laughs> let you know if you're right or wrong. I'd, uh, I'd be glad to take that call. Brett, thank you so much for coming on. We're huge fans of your work, and we really appreciate your time this morning. Many thanks for having me on. All right, Brett Stevens is Hunter of the Phone. We thank him very much for his time. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. You can officially subscribe on Spotify. This is new as of last week. Yeah, I think we've lied about in the past, but we are finally on Spotify. I confirmed it myself. We got some interesting reviews in this past week. One does, of them... Does Spotify, by the way, have its own podcast section? Yeah, they've actually got a great podcast. If you just search it, it's, it's really? right in with the rest of the music. But they we're have a not great... listed as like R and B, are we? No, we're not. We're not. I think we go on the folk, the folk section. <laughs> not yet. We're folk. <laughs> Sorry, you were about to read some great comments. What yeah, do we come have? On. Our, our listeners love this section. We got one from DC podcast guy who says entertaining and informative. I didn't think I would enjoy banter as much after Spencer and Cece left, but Matt and Max do a better job than their predecessors. Which Max are you speaking about? Well, we know that answer, it's, Frost. It's too soon to tell. Their discussions are interesting, and their chemistry is solid. Solid. That means a lot. Well, then definitely you, Frost, because they would have picked a better adjective if they uh, <laughs> heard the new one. I like how they've got they're a loyal listener, too. They've been around for two generations. Of I know. That's, yeah, we appreciate that. Yeah. We also got one more comment who says, this is from Bella Lover, who says, A-plus conversation. Love the banter between the hosts. The interesting topics and flowing conversation keeps me coming back week after week. Well, Bella, let me tell you something. There's only going to be more of that going forward. As you know, we're just we're revamping the show, and I think you're gonna you're gonna hear a lot of that chemistry. We've got good things coming for you, Bella. So, the new segment is called Watch, Read, Listen, and in this segment, we go around the table and we each point out something that we watched, read, or listened to in the past week that we would like to share with you today. Matt Winesett, kick us off. All right, I'm cheating a little bit because this is not something I came across in the last week, but Tui's pretty uninformed comment about the Empire and Star Wars during the interview tipped me off to this. We have a new Star Wars movie coming out, Episode Nine. And what I recommend this week is everybody go back to read Jonathan V. Last's brilliant, insightful essay called The Case for the Empire, originally published in the Weekly Standard in 2002. He says, the truth is that from the beginning, George Lucas confused the good guys with the bad. The deep lesson of Star Wars is that the Empire is good. The rebels' victory over the Empire did not liberate the galaxy. It turned the galaxy into Somalia writ large, dominated by local warlords who are answerable to no one. This is just, and you know, he wrote this in 2002. His point has only been proven by the episode of Rogue One, when you see terrorists, aka the rebels, roaming wide. Proven more so by episode seven, when the First Order, this fascistic Nazi inspired regime, rises out of the ashes 
far worse than anything to the Empire ever was. Okay, they gotta stop making Star Wars movies. <laughs> they, I'm so sick of Star not, Wars. Have you seen the trailer? They do, but are we I'm, gonna I'm, ignore the fact that he just said the Empire were the good guys? This is you ever seen Palpatine? Yeah, he. I'm not. I mean, you're saying next Voldemort's a good guy? <laughs> no, Voldemort is unquestionably bad. The Jonathan, if you read the essay, Jonathan Last says the Empire is not the best regime you could root for, but kind of like Franco's Spain, Pinochet's Chile. Oh yeah, because all right, they, guys, they, they the, because Darth Spain Vader's is much worse Fred off Rogers. Yeah. Everybody remember that Darth Vader's Fred Rogers, Senator Palpatine's Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> it was a free trading empire. I mean, all the all the Civil War is kicked off by a trade dispute between the uh, Tatooine and Nab- Naboo. Or maybe something. I need to go back and watch it. I haven't watched Star Wars seriously since I was eight years old, so maybe I got to go back and catch up on those. None of you movies. are on Twitter enough. This is a that huge. Is this is like a many years long running meme in the conservative Twitter sphere. Or some would say you're on Twitter too much. I I would I would say that myself. But this is this is an ongoing dispute, and it has become such an elaborate troll that. More liberal-leaning sites like the Daily Beast write pieces like, the neocons love the Empire, and this proves that, they, that they're just as evil as we always thought and such. And it's just great that they've took it hook, line, and sinker. Well, Daily Beast has a point after listening to that. All right, Max, what do you got? I'll go with Watch. I watched a great movie last night on Netflix, The Lives of Others. German movie, 2006 Academy Award winner for Best Foreign Film. Movie's about a Stasi policeman in East Germany, secret police, spying on dissident artists who kind of becomes you know he, he they bug they bug his house they he bugs these people's house he's spying on them watching the whole thing but pretty quickly he starts reading the literature they're reading this western dissident literature and he re- realizes pretty quickly that these guys are in the right and he's in the wrong and it kind of traces east german politics history through told through this the secret policeman and then the dissidents on the other side excellent movie highly recommend it. it's on netflix and finally i'm gonna go red <clears throat> again and I just finished a book, Johnny Carson biography by Henry Bushkin, his longtime lawyer, best friend, and confidant. And one thing that stuck out to me was in 1981 at Ronald Reagan's inauguration, they had A-list celebrities. Okay, Johnny Carson was the MC. Bob Hope performed. Frank Sinatra performed. Dean Martin was supposed to perform, but he was too drunk. And all of a sudden, you're thinking... Where is this? Th- Could you imagine if for a Republican president today, if they had the A-listers of Hollywood, you know, perform for them? So I know that's a dismal, and we talk a lot about... Wait till Kanye 2020. Wait till that's actually Kanye and Clint Eastwood. That's not a bad lineup. We're, 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 we're getting there. But, you know, I think recently there was that whole debacle about Ellen's friendship with George W. Bush. We need more of that. We need to get to the point where, you know, whether it's Obama or or maybe Ed Trump's a little out there, but Obama or Bush, you should have A-listers. You should have the country behind you, or at least not have it be a controversy if they do perform. Can we ever get back to where we were in 1980, 1984, vis-a-vis bipartisanship? And, I mean, when you look at the map, I mean, for us being born all in the 90s, the first time that any, at least I or think any of us, looked at one of those electoral maps from 1980 or 1984, it blew my mind to how see won, how red it was. Every state in yeah. yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. And even, um, even in my lifetime, when I was a kid growing up in New York, Pataki was a Republican governor. Giuliani was a Republican mayor of New York City. And if I'm not mistaken, Nixon's re-election before, you know, things at Watergate didn't go so well, he won all, all but like two states. And then Clinton in, in, in 96 won the vast majority. Yeah, Nixon dominated in 72. I mean, but this is something smart political analysts always say is that in our lifetime, 
we will see every vote that is considered safe Republican now go blue and vice versa. We might live to see California vote Republican and Texas vote Democrat. I don't know. I mean, that's a little... T- I was going to say fingers crossed, but I guess I shouldn't say it's a, It's a little <laughs> tough to believe now, but it's, it's highly possible. Would you trade Texas for California? I'm an impartial observer here. I'm not going to... Well, well I, I, what's the story... Real quickly, we, we're about to sign off, but what's the story for, Repu- for California going red at this point? What's there, there's the no term? compelling story now. The point is just that dynamics shift a right. lot and they're unpredictable. I mean, California was pretty safely Republican for a while before the 80s. Do you think Greta Thunberg is going to become a climate change denier? I don't think that the laws of politics... <laughs> is that her name, Greta Thunberg? Thunberg. Thunberg. A recurring feature on this show. <laughs> a lot. All right. With that, thank you very much for listening. We will see you again soon. Thank you. You're like falling asleep in your chair over there. I'm not falling asleep. I'm I'm enjoying the low energy. Low energy too. I'm enjoying the.